Welcome to episode 817 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 817 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Oz. How you going, mate? I'm pretty good, Bevan. How's uh, Tickapole? Oh, it's, it's been beautiful, actually. I've been, admittedly, I've just been in a room recording for the last three days, but it has been beautiful. I've gone for a couple of runs. It's, 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 it's a beautiful spot, John. It is indeed. So for those uh, overseas athletes, overseas listeners, Tickapole is in the middle bottom middle part of the South Island. Beautiful big lake, ski fields and stuff around. Very nice. Stunning view. Stunning view. I'm pretty lucky right now. So, yep. What about John Newsom? What's he been doing? Uh, I will go into that later on. I've had an action-packed week, Bevan. Action Jackson. That's what we call you. Okay. And I'm in this week's show. We've got some. Oh no, I'm talking. Is proudly brought to you by our awesome patrons. We've got Michelle ATM. That's awesome triathlon man, Calvin, and her hubby Ryan Big Red Curvin. Oh, Kevin, sorry. Um, and then we've got George, Mr. Madman Gray. Now, in this week's show, we've got some news. We've got a hot topic of the week. We have a quiz question. They seem to be turning out to be pretty popular. Uh, Pearl of the week. And then we've got an interview, John. We're going to talk with Ryan Kohler. Um, we're going to talk a bit about you know, how to interpret your bike stats, a little bit of left-right balance, things like that. Is his brother Coca? I do not know that, Bevan. Coca-Cola, <laughs> come on, there's a joke. Yeah, yeah, I know, I got it, but it was like, it's, it's, it's a week, week start, week start. Come on, okay. I'm on fire. Okay, we've also got Wanger of the Weeks, and then we've got John Swim set at the end here. Okay, so this week's result, we did have some a couple of big races happen, and what happened in South Africa with the swim, John? They, it's, it's happened, well, actually, I don't know how many times it's happened over there, um, but the swim got cancelled i believe for the age group it's not 100 percent sure on that but i think i heard that on the coverage for the pros they put them in for uh, alle- al- allegedly 700 meters but kyle buckingham uh swam in 807 so if that was 700 meters he is uh olympic standard swimmer uh so i'm picking it was a bit short and given it was extremely rough so the the rain was pelting down the wind was blowing in the surf was up so you know swimming 3.8 k's in those conditions would have been um, hazardous, I would say. However, for the pros, you know, if you can swim 700 meters, can you not swim a little bit further than that? Um, That's true. It's, I, I think, yeah, for age groupers, the right decision was made. But when I looked at the coverage, yes, it was extremely rough. But it would have been nice to see them maybe do a couple of laps in the swim. Now, you, I'm not, I wasn't standing there or anything like that, so I don't know the conditions they were, were dealing with exactly. But one of the things that you do struggle with in those um, sort of situations is actually keeping the swim boys in place. So often they'll get sort of washed away or blown off their marks. But again, if they can hold them there for 700 metres, uh, I would have liked to have seen them swim maybe two laps or three laps or something like that. But anyway, at least they got a race, which was the main thing. But conditions did look pretty miserable. So men's race, we were talking last week saying, you know, it's pretty much Joe's race. He seemed to be the highest pedigree athlete, but he only put it for fourth. So do you know what happened within the race? Uh, I, I was watching bits and pieces of it, um, only bits and pieces. Uh, we ended up with a South African trifecta, first, mm. second, third. Uh, and those are good athletes, you know. So it's not like Joe Skipper had a woeful day, but he'll be pretty disappointed. So the way it panned out was they more, you know, around about, 
eight or maybe 10 athletes or somewhere in that region came off the bike together and it basically became a running race. Uh, and, you know, it was really, really close. You know, in the end, uh, they ran quick given the conditions were um cool and you know a little bit of rain about you know you would have expected a quick run um so Kyle Buckingham won with a run of a 241.34 uh and he won by 19 seconds in front of Bradley Weiss and then Matt Troutman was not far back only another less than a minute back in third Joe Skipper still ran a 245 um, for fourth place but we know he's on his day you know he's a 240 runner if not uh, under that so I think he'll be a bit disappointed with that and yeah he was the highest ranked athlete and um, then we had Colin Chartier in fifth who ran a 247 on what I think was his Ironman debut so yeah not quite the result we expected but Cole Buckingham has won races before Bradley Vice, I think it might have been his uh, Ironman debut I think I'm just uh, checking on that now yeah he does mainly does 70.3s no he did Ironman South Africa he got fifth last year so I was wrong. Um, but yeah, those those three are all experienced campaigners. So Joe Skipper just was not quite on fire. Okay, on the female side of the field, uh, the Germans took it out, Daniela Blaymath. Yeah, she, Daniela Blaymer, she uh, was the one who had a great battle a few years ago with Lucy Charles and Challenge Rote, um, yeah, ending up right. winning that, and then yeah. got second the following year. She's actually got an awesome, um, she had a really awesome start to her Ironman career. Now she's uh, 33, I think she's been on maternity leave, I think. Um, she hasn't raced since 2019. So, yes, yeah, she took it out. Solid performance um, with a 311 run and a 456 on the bike. In 2019, she had a great year, got ninth in Hawaii. So, second in Rote. Uh, she won a few half distance races. The year before that, she won Rote. She won Ironman Italy. She was fifth in Hamburg. So, yes, yeah, had a bit of time off. And, and obviously, a bit of that's been COVID forced as well. Um, but that's a pretty strong, uh, strong return to form. Won it. You know, pretty easily by 11 minutes over Alina Eldersic with Magna Neuwout in third. Uh, we had a couple of did not finishes. Um, Sarissa Devers was, I think she was second off the bike and did not finish for some reason. And a couple of the other sort of pre-race favourites was Kylie Simpson, who's an amazing uh, runner from Australia and, you know, typically runs well under three hours. Uh, and Susie Cheatham also was a DNF. So a couple of the big, big hitters and Christian Leopold. So quite a few of them dropped out um, either on the bike or after the bike. Daniela in 2019, she must have been looking, remember that, did I still do the challenge bonus? Because if you look at her season yeah. of 2019, she did five challenge races, you know, yeah. and one, two, two thirds in a second. Um, so she must have probably taken out that prize in that year. Yeah, no, they definitely did. I remember them doing it last year. So uh, yeah, hopefully they'll do it again this year. It's not been an athlete has, you know, it's been three years really since she's been racing. Mm. Um, you know, Hawaii was the last time she'd raced in 2019. Nice to come back and she had done the 70.3 in DNS a few weeks ago, but at uh, Dubai, but to come back and then actually win a race again, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? That would be awesome. And mm. uh, get your, get your qualifying done and dusted for Kona in the, in the process. Okay. So now let's look at Oceanside 70.3. And before we talk about the results, one of the controversies was what's, some athletes got done for speeding in a no speeding zone. So what was the story there? 
Uh, from what I understand, Daniela Reef got busted. Uh, she finished in 10th place, and we'll go into that in a moment, uh, then got disqualified for going too quickly in a restricted zone, which and that's, that's common, common practice. A number of races, they restrict things. So I don't know exactly how they police it, whether they have uh, a timing mat at each end, and if you exceed the speed, um, they bust you. Or, uh, and what, or and what, When you say speeding zone, how, what mm. kind of distance is that? Is it just a couple hundred metres, is it? Well, for example, uh, I don't know anything about the details in this particular yeah. case, but like, for example, in Kona, from my memory, uh, when you come down Palani Road uh, on the bike at the beginning, it's a no passing zone um, yeah. coming down that hill. And it is frustrating as hell if you get stuck behind somebody. Uh, so there must be something like that where there's a, a real narrowing on the course or something like that. Somebody can email us in and let us know. Or there's a particular dangerous part of the course where they don't want you, you know, going crazy past other people. So, you know, she clearly broke, you know, everyone will have known those rules and she clearly obviously broke it and other people didn't. How they ended up busting her, I don't know. Um, so tough luck on her. But given the way she performed, I don't think she's going to be too cut up about it. Well, so she got a 10th. So did, 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 did you actually end up watching the race? Well, do you want my bit of a rant now? Or okay, do you want here we go. Here's the rant. Here we go. <laughs> so I'm thinking Oceanside, you know, it's on this weekend. And this is going to be, I think, maybe the first time they've had uh, done the race coverage on this outside TV. And I'm thinking this, this is going to be good. You know, uh, it's going to take it off Facebook and that opens it up for people that aren't on Facebook opens up the race to a new audience and, and happy days. This is going to be good. It's going to boost the coverage of the event. However, the time zone for us didn't really work. You know, I got up uh, and I think they would have been just about finishing the race. And so I thought, I'm not going to watch this right now. I'm going to watch this on delayed coverage. You can do that with uh, when it's on the Facebook Live. I'm going to go and watch that afterwards. Um, so great. Not going to watch it. Get on the trainer. Go to try to watch it. They haven't got a yeah. delayed – they've had it, but they haven't got the delayed coverage up. I thought, oh, I'll give them a break. Maybe they're going to put it up later. Now they do have it up later, but you've got to go and bloody pay outside sports all this money to uh, to, to watch it. And you've got to pay a year up front, which is something like 100 bucks or something along those lines. And I thought, oh, I actually preferred it the way you had it before. We go on there. Uh, so anyway, I was a bit annoyed, especially because it was such an awesome race. So wait a second. So you're not – you can watch it live for free. You can't watch it delayed for free. But you can't watch it delayed, so you can't go back after the fact and watch it again for free. Correct. Oh, that's a bummer. Because as you say, for a lot of you know, people like yourself, indoor training sessions, you'll go and watch races when your indoor training sessions are happening. And a lot of people will probably do that. And, and obviously around the world, not everyone can make the times when races are on. Mm. Now, you could say, well, 100 bucks a year, so be it. But the problem is nowadays there's so many little sections that are asking for a hundred bucks. Do you know what I mean? There's all these different subscription services and all these different providers that are asking for a little bit of money. And so you, you know, your dollar only goes so far, doesn't it? It does. I mean, they have got quite a few races lined up. You know, all the, you know, a lot of the major seventy point threes this year and so on. So you know, if you were committed to watching them all, as you said, it's probably okay. But if you want to do just the odd one off here or there, which is kind of what I want to do. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah, a bit frustrating anyway. Okay, so let's look at the females race first. So Taylor Nib took it out, looked quite comfortably in the end. Yeah, and, and not not 
entirely surprising that she took it out you know she's been on fire so she swam 23 rode a 220 and then ran a 117 and that 117 sort of you know one of the faster run splits there was only a couple of females that went quicker than that Ashley Gentle went a minute quicker but yeah it was just that really strong bike ride of a 220 was uh, between three and sort of five minutes quicker than most of the others plus she's a good swimmer so not surprising there but the surprise second Luisa Baptista from Brazil really fantastic performance by her she went to the Olympics she was one of the lower ranked athletes um, but amazing performance by her to beat out the likes of Holly Lawrence Ashley Gentle and Jackie Herring along with Paula Finlay Chelsea Sodaro Sky Monch Ruth Astle mm, that's a field. quality yeah. field uh, so for her to get second I'd say that's the performance of the day uh, the rest of the results were you know not entirely unsurprising I thought Ashley Gentle might have done a little bit better um, but well, yeah, what, that, about, what about Daniela that's the that's surprising that, one that's the big talking point is so what, what, what happened? Well, she's just uh, not going that great at the moment. So, you know, how many chances do we g- you know, give her to say, oh, she's, she'll, she'll be back, she'll be okay. You know, she did race really well in Texas last year, but since then, um, yeah, we haven't seen uh, haven't seen the Daniela of old. So, you know, whether it's health problems or something, it's hard, kind of hard to know, but um, she is certainly not going to be um, scaring people in terms of when she's lining up on the start line any longer. So I definitely think she will have lost that aura. She can easily bring it back, but, um, but yeah, she's, she's not the set, doesn't seem to be the same woman she was, uh, you know, pre COVID times. Definitely the aura is lesson, isn't it? Well, for her and then on the guy's side, it's it's much the same with uh, Alistair Brownlee. You know, I don't think people will be lining up against him with uh, at the half or the full distance with uh, him scaring the bejesus out of them. Okay, so let's let's go into the men's race because the men's race did look pretty fascinating and Alistair was dominating and kind of faded or kind of hit the wall, did he? Well, this is what I wanted to watch, Bevan. The run, yeah. the run would have been awesome to watch. You know, how often do we get, you know, four or five guys going head to head, various different lead changes, uh, especially in the closing stages? It would have been awesome. So, as it panned out, I wouldn't say Alistair Brownlee was dominating by any stretch. He was in the lead on the run, uh, and then. Faded right at the very end, and the other guys uh, swooped on that and uh, took it. So Jackson Laundry, surprise winner when you look at the rest of this field. Uh, mm. it, it, he's had some good races, um, and he had a good 70.3 world champs last year, but you wouldn't normally pick him to beat these other guys. So he ended up winning um, by a th- about 30 seconds over Lionel Sanders and Rudy Von Berg. And how about the sprint finish? Yeah, and the, the crazy thing was, even though I couldn't watch the coverage, I, I went back and looked at the splits on the, the tracker and watching the progress of Lionel Sanders. He was a, a couple of minutes down uh, coming off the bike, and it didn't look like he made up that much uh, time, you know, for a good 15K, and he must have just absolutely smoked the last 5K in combination with the other guys uh, fading quite quickly because he was still a long way out of the um, off the podium and then just came surging through and uh, and out-sprint Rudy Von Berg and they both, Alistair Brownlee was still in the shot in the background. They, you know, caught him with a, you know, matter of metres, you know, a couple of hundred metres to go. So awesome racing. It was an awesome sprint too because they both went early. Like, you know, like it, it was just like both killing themselves. And you know what? You, you, you got to love Sanders because that guy is tough. 108.28 is sensationally fast. And it just ceases to amaze me that the ugliest runner in yeah. our sport is so fast. 
it'd be really interesting, you know, like this this talent in 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 ability, and it'd just be interesting to it'd be a really cool experience. And this will never happen, and it can't happen. But to have the internal experience of different athletes at their peak, and to mm. see the place they go to within themselves, because you know, I was thinking about Sanders yesterday. I was thinking, if you're going to go to war, you want Sanders on your team. You know what I mean? You want to be on his his. his he, if you're going to pick just who's the grittiest athlete out there, that's the guy you want. Now, if you want the classiest athlete, you want Fredino on your team, obviously. But you know, like Sanders, just his toughness. You know, like you know, to to be two minutes of coming off the run and five k to go and probably still being that far back, and still have the fight in you, and then get to that last bit and have that sprint. He, he's an absolute phenomenal athlete. Yeah, yeah, it's totally his his cardiovascular system must be uh, amazing. I know, you know, we, he he wears his heart on his sleeve and and comes across as being mentally tough, and clearly he is. Other people um, exhibit that in different ways, but yeah, just I, I just. The, the biggest thing that baffles me is is just his technique. <laughs> it just looks odd, uh, but it just clearly works. Um, but, so but, but, but I, you know, I think of, you know, you know, and the central governor theory has been kind of debated, but I would say he's the guy who's willing to hurt the most in the sport or has the ability to hurt the most because every time there's been a test where it comes down to his grit, he tends to come out on top. Mm, no, he does. You're right. He's he's uh, he's pretty awesome, and he's a good character. But yeah. this is a quality field. Uh, ben Canute in fifth, Jason Weston, I know. Sixth, Sam Appleton. You got Bart Arnott. You got Dave McNamee. You got Ben Hoffman, and they're down like the fourteenth, fifteenth. Michael yeah. Weiss. Mm. Now, so, just on just, Brownlee, your thoughts on Brownlee now? Uh, look, I don't. I just, I just can't see. He's 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 a, he's a contender. You know, this is a, a near world championship field, so he's still one of the best. But you just you're considering him now one of the best in the field. You're not going, he's going to hand down win every single time or anything like that. So I don't think it. it he just seems to be falling apart on the run um, fairly consistently. So it doesn't fill me with a lot of confidence in terms of the um, sub seven attempt. Uh, you know, I would have expected him to be firing. You know, really strongly here, and that was that was a still a really good performance. But you know. To go sub seven or to be the, you know, Ironman world champion, I would have expected them to be dominating this race. So yep. um, just on that, if he's doing, when, when's the sub seven? Uh, it's after St George, so it's uh, I think oh, okay, it's, so it's still a while away. Okay, yeah. Um, just on on um, Brownlee, he's still only thirty three. Now I know his athletic age; he's an old man mm. in that game, but he still is only thirty three. Yeah, uh, athletic, athletic age and in terms of the condition of his body, that's a completely different, um, yeah, completely different scenario. Because you'd argue, to, you, you know, traditionally he'd be hitting his peak endurance years now, mm. you know, for for the longer course stuff. Obviously, for the shorter stuff, it's different. But yeah, and, and his body's been beaten up, and he has been in the last few years been a bit of glass for his body, hasn't he? Exactly. Okay, we had another race happening. Challenge Saloon. and again the swim got. Cancel. They have got a swim listed here, but they, I know they had a, a run to start with. It ended up being a duathlon. Not quite sure why um, Vincent Louis, Louis, yeah. Louis was down to start, and he didn't. Um, it did look like the conditions were, were okay, but it was very, very cold, and uh, and the swim got cancelled. Girls' side, we had Fenella Langridge take it out um, with a good performance, two-minute victory over Els Visser and Indy Lee. And then on the uh, the boys' side, you had Christian Holgenhag. Um, take out an awesome race with about 50 seconds over Roberto Mantison and 
Emil Holm in third place. So good racing over there. Again, fast run times. You're seeing 109s, 110s, 112s. Uh, pretty fast and good strong field when you've only got the likes of Sam Laidlow down in ninth place, uh, Denny Chevron in 15th. So, yeah, fast racing, early season stuff. Piece of news that came out this week is that Lucy Charles is out of action with a stress fracture. That means she's not going to be racing St. George, and the sub eight probably won't be happening or won't be happening. Probably just got enough time to be ready for Kona, but has she got enough time to be peak ready for Kona? Yeah, I don't know. When it's a, a stress fracture of your hip, you know, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, I think long term, but. I don't know, you could, you look at the silver lining, could be a blessing in disguise, forcing her to have a little bit of break. She's probably been going full noise for for a while. So, And one thing we've seen a lot of her racing in the last period of time is she's been doing that really short stuff, which, hmm. you know, is that real, and now she's young and she's fit, but it's that real more, it's way more demanding on the body than the 70.3s and the Ironman when we look at intensity and demand on body. Hmm. So, um, yeah, that's a real shame because she was on fire and had a, again, like the guys with the sub seven, you know, you think she had a legitimate chance of doing the sub eight. And so the problem they've got now with the sub eight for the females is Nicholas Spurig has been out with, I think it was a broken collarbone or something yeah, along those yeah. lines. And uh, I think she's still going to give it a crack. Um, but then obviously Lucy Charles is out, whether they try to sub somebody in. Um, yeah, it's just unfortunate. Well, you could, who, who are you going to put in there? You know, that's the, the question. Is that who else is is realistically capable of going anywhere close? Um, you'd, normally, you'd say Danielle Reef, but on current form, you're saying nothing mm, that's happening. Um, so, who else would you put in there that's got a, a realistic chance? Not many, I don't think. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Okay, other thing that's happened this week is the Colin Cup's captains have been announced for Europe, USA, and the international. Uh, pretty much legends in all places. In Europe, you've got Norman and Natasha. In US, you've got Dave Scott and Julie Moss. Julie Moss is in a good one. Uh, and then in the international, you've got Aaron, uh, Aaron Baker and Craig Alexander. Now, your thoughts on the captains? Oh, that, yeah, I think Europe's the same as this year, so that's uh, status quo for them. Um, the Americans this year, or no, sorry, last year, it was they Karen had, Smiles, wasn't it? It was Karen Smiles, and I yeah. think it was Mark Allen. Dave, yeah, Scott, was. Was definitely, Dave Scott was definitely there, uh, so they've changed that around. And then in the internationals, they had Simon Whitfield and um, Lisa Bentley, so yeah, they've had a change there. Yeah. So Craig Alexander will be good, you know. I, I guess he probably compliments Aaron really well because Craig is still heavily connected in the tri on world and knows uh, exactly what's going on and he's still racing so he knows the athletes inside and out whereas Aaron is an absolute legend of the sport um, but really is not very connected and um, yeah so good to have her in there in terms of recognizing her sort of stature in the sport but in terms of her knowledge of, of the, the the pros and and what they're up to these days is is Definitely on the, the lower side compared to those others, I believe. Though if we know anything about Erin, if he's going to commit, she's going to do it properly. Mm, true. You, you know, like she'll, she'll do her work. The, the captain's thing was an interesting thing last time because it was, they are kind of just a showpiece, aren't they? Well, it didn't really pan out um, 
with the communication and that's where I think we'll see some changes hopefully this year is the captains giving the athletes a bit more information and and getting some feedback from the athletes on the course so then you can play a bit more strategy it sounded like it might have been happening a little bit but what I think we want to see going forward is that radio contact between athletes and captains and we can hear that as they're going through the race a bit like in say Formula One you get the odd uh, comment from the drivers and they and they play that on on air um, that's hopefully what we'll see in the event this year. How can we how can we improve the Collins Cup format? Well, you can ask for a weather forecast where it's not going to absolutely be horrendous and interrupt yeah, their uh, interrupt their communication. But I think they they learned a lot last year. It's you know they just had a lot of breakdowns in terms of communication and and figuring out actually how to capture the event with so many different things happening at once. Yeah, I'm just I'm just kind of thinking of how we can make it more interesting as the spectator sport. Because um, one one of the problem we're going to face this year is again is Europe's just going to be so dominant, aren't they? Oh, you'd think so. Um, did you see the did you get sucked into any April Fool's jokes, Bevan? No, uh, I didn't get sucked in. I saw a couple. What, what, what mm. are you talking about? Well, uh, I saw one the Collins uh, Cup. What they announced was that. Uh, Great Britain was going to be joining Team Internationals, which you could go, okay, well, they're not technically part of the EU. Yeah, and I know there's, they left European, it. They left there's, it. there's European Union, there's Europe, and there's all different things going on there. But uh, it was plausible enough to think, oh, yeah, that could happen. And they had a picture of Joe Skipper, Lucy Charles, and uh, Emma Pallant Brown on there with the Internationals uniform. So I don't think many people got sucked in. But it would make it a lot more interesting because, uh, as you said, Europe, if, if they're firing on all cylinders and they've got so much depth, like yeah, even yeah. If, if Daniela Reef's not the ego or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Um, they'll you know, just bust out another sort of five or six people that will be equally competitive. So, yeah, it's a bit of a worry. It's, it is going to be a bit one-sided for a while. Yeah, and that's the problem for a while, isn't it? Because you're kind of looking for – let's look at the next five years. You're kind of thinking – Europe's got it. Now, you don't necessarily know the next athletes coming through, but Europe's pretty strong. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. So. And, we, you know, we need the rivalry to actually be a thing. You know, what we need is a Collins Cup where it does come down to the last race to see who's going to win, if you know what mm. I mean. You know, you kind of, last year, at first, was it the Americans that started well last year? Yeah, they did. It was it was looking good early on, you know. Yeah. You, still, you still kind of knew that Europe was probably going to come through, so you need... Um, yeah, they were, they were lucky. They were getting a bit of luck going their way with a few people not firing, you know, like Daniela Reef and one or two others. Um, but, you know, again, Europe is just every single position is going to be very, very strong. And mm. I think this year, even even stronger, you know, when the rankings are going to be heavily based off those PTO events and the short, some of the shorter course athletes might do well at those uh, or the 70.3 specialists, whereas at the last event, you still had a lot of the Ironman athletes had good rankings because of COVID. So, yeah, I think um, Europe are just going to crush it. This weekend, there's not a lot of race happening, but we do have Ironman Taiwan. It's an age group only race. Mm. Um, so they haven't had that for a couple of years since COVID. So 2019 was their last edition. So good to see some racing kicking back into action in Asia because there's, there's very little happening there. And a lot of the Ironman events in Asia still haven't been confirmed or announced this year. So um, Ironman Korea hasn't got a date. Um, Ironman Malaysia hasn't yet got a date. You know, we're, we're in the start of April already. So if those events are going to happen, um, they're typically sort of in the September, October sort of period or a little bit later than that. Hopefully they get announced soon and, and uh, athletes in that part of the world can, can start to see a bit more racing. 
Okay, John Shortcourse update. Super League Arena Games is happening in Munich this weekend. Doesn't look like we've got the greatest field. Uh, reasonable field, but it is on this weekend. I said to my son on, on Sunday morning, once I couldn't watch Oceanside, I said, oh, I think there's a Super League race on. They do lots of uh, spoilers. If you go onto YouTube, uh, Super League do have the live coverage on there and you can watch it straight afterwards. So I thought, I'm not going to go on there and to get a spoiler. I said, Thomas, go on to the Super League on YouTube. Find me the race from today in Munich, and I'm going to go watch that on the trainer. He's done through, and I'm, yes, he said, I can't see. I said, Come on, man, pick out your game, just find it. <laughs> and and uh, grounded, it's, it's not there. I said, What do you mean? And then I checked the dates, and it's actually this weekend. Uh, so we, we've got still got an okay field. You've got um, Martin Van Riel, who's who's one of the best athletes going around uh, these days. He recently won 70.3 in, was it Dubai or somewhere in the Middle East with an awesome performance. He won the last round of the proper Super League uh, the end of last year. So he's awesome, and he'll be going up against Alex Yee. So that'll be a great little battle. Uh, and then on the female side, you've got Jess Learmont, um going up against uh, Annabelle Knoll, who's a German I don't know too much about. So it doesn't sound like many of the Team GB dominators are going to be over there. So hopefully the female side is, is a good race, but we should see some good battles on the, the boys' side at least. Uh, so they get, the way they format this this weekend is they have a couple of heats to get people into the final and then the final is sort of three races uh doing a 200 meter swim 4k bike 1k run and they mix the order around in those three races and then when you go into the the third and final race uh it's a sort of a, a handicap start based on what you've done in those first couple of performances so should be some awesome action love this arena games and hopefully we see some nice uh close battles yeah, I'm fascinated to see how it goes. It was a kind of win this time. There will be a crowd there this time. So I'm kind of fascinated yeah. to see how that influences the race because it is exciting racing. It's quick. It's dynamic. You've got the big screen, which will show you what's happening on the Zwift side of it as well. Having a crowd there, I just think adds another dynamic to it, if, especially if the crowd gets into it and they've got good hype people there. It could be like, I'd love to go. Like if I was in London when it's in London, I'd definitely be going. Yeah, and you know, knowing what we know about triathlon in Germany and the crowds they get at, at the sort of world triathlon events and uh, Ironman races, you'd think they're going to get a good crowd in there. So uh, let's see what they can do. Okay, uh, this week's discussion of the week. What are your key training, Ironman training sessions? And it was kind of like just before you leading into the race was kind of the, the context of the question. John, you go first. Uh, George Samuels is a 100-mile ride with three hours of Ironman efforts and then a 20K runoff with 15K at Ironman pace. Another one he does is a 20-mile run with six by two miles at marathon pace and a few other harder efforts like a 60K bike and a 10K run all under Ironman effort. Keep going because my Facebook is taking forever. Uh, Chris Dunn, he says a metric race simulation. Um, so this is a good idea with race gear, nutrition, course profile, etc. Uh, so instead of doing a 2.4 mile swim, you do a 2.4 K swim, uh, 112K bike and a 26K run, uh, doing that around about three to four weeks out. So a little bit, just a little bit longer than a um, half Ironman. Uh, it's good thinking, Chris. Oh, David Rose got, I always aim to do about four 100 mile bike rides in the last three weeks before the race. I also do a straight 3.8k swim to ensure I'm in, I was in good swim to good to swim the distance. Uh, I don't swim as much as 3.8 very much. So it's as far as I'll swim and I'll do a 20 mile run as well. I had no schedule, just made sure I got these sessions done often with the weather being that what will determine when the training will happen. 
uh, Tim Egg, uh, like a couple of other people here, is a, is a good old simulation. 60% of an Ironman distance using race day equipment and nutrition to double check everything is all good. Always a good hit out. Lee Ornsby's got work out uh, what you work out what you're going to eat and then and when you can't sustain energy or gels drinks no more. Uh, work out what you want when you want to piss on the bike, uh, but make sure someone's behind you and work out the way to start running again when you've walked in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, the last one, uh, Richard Swan, a five hour plus ride and then an hour run off the bike at uh, your Ironman race pace on Saturday and then on Sunday uh, doing a 35 kilometer run. So basically doing pretty much riding the distance on Saturday with a 10k run and then Sunday 35k run so you're more or less doing a simulation over two days what about you John what are the key ones you like to do I know you always like to do a half Ironman of 10k run uh, when I do a half Iron, a full half Ironman simulation at Ironman distance so that's um, at Ironman pace so that's uh, that's much like other people there so you know usually a 2k swim 90 roughly 90 to 100k bike and a 21k run all at Ironman pace uh, so that's probably my number one and what, uh, what stage before the Ironman do you like to do that how many weeks out uh, about four, four, about four weeks out is good. And then from there, I'd probably normally do the following weekend, do a bit of an Ironman simulation, like people have said here, spread over three days. So Friday doing like a you know, 4K straight swim, Saturday doing a 180K ride, and then Sunday doing a three-hour run. And I probably would, normally wouldn't do that 180K at Ironman effort. Uh, that's a bit of a stretch, uh, but I would normally include sort of 30 minutes off, 30 minutes off so just cruising one hour on and repeating that throughout the ride um so that's sort of a another one of my favorite rides is your your, your long ride anywhere from you know four to six hours um you know doing a number of one hour intervals at uh at ironman intensity Nice. This week's discussion, what piece of triathlon equipment would you like to see banned? On the flip side, what piece of equipment would you like to be really, or would you really be upset with if it got banned? So what do you think should be banned? And what would you be upset with if they banned, like aero bars? You'd be upset if they banned aero bars. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a problem. Okay, John's quiz question. Here's the question, quiz question for this week. What is it, Jumbo? What was the winning time in the first Hawaii Ironman? So now we're talking here 1978, wasn't it? I think it was. So do you know the answer was, already? I do not. So we'll, uh, I'll have my stab in the dark when we get to there later in the show. Um, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a guess on it. Was the, first I, one, was the first one on the Big Island? No, no the first uh, the first. Quite a few were, were initially on, on Waikiki, yes, um, right. where you did the Waikiki rough water swim or the equivalent of it. Uh, you certainly didn't ride a whole lap of the island, but it was, um, you know, wasn't far off that, I believe. And then you ran the Honolulu Marathon run course. Such a cool, it's such a cool story. If, if for those who don't know, and I'm sure most do, the way this, the Ironman started was, who was it, who was it John Ford? Who, who, who was his name? Collins, uh, John Collins, John Collins, Tom yeah. Collins, Tom Collins, John Collins, Tom, no, Tom, Collins. Tom won it, didn't he? Tom Gordon uh, won it. Mm, I can't remember. Okay. This is great. This is great history lesson. Um, yeah. But he, he basically was an, an army dude. And he said, if anyone could do the rough water swim, do, and there was a cycle race that was basically at 180K, wasn't there? Yeah. Do this way and do the, the marathon one day. I'll call, I'll call you an Ironman. 
And that's literally, and, and like 12 guys turned up and one guy took 24 hours. One guy stopped. There's this great, there's a great story. Bob Babbitt on his website has it um, where a kid literally stops at like KFC at three in the morning, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, it's just this really cool kind of story of how this started. And then from there, that was really the big start of what, like there had been triathlons beforehand, but that's kind of the moment where triathlon became a much bigger thing, you know, from that moment forward, at least. Okay. Let's look at pro of the week. Quick. Lisa Norton. I want to celebrate Lisa Norton's performances um, because she's the thing with her is she was an awesome world triathlon athlete. Uh, she was an Olympic medalist. Her long distance races, she, of, she often hyped up beforehand and she's had some good performances, but they have not been on the perhaps the same level that she reached at the Olympic distance. Uh, so I wanted to highlight some of the, the good stuff and, and have a look at what she has been up to in terms of her long distance racing because she is a very well-known person. Uh, she did actually race at the weekend, only managed a fifth at Challenge Salou. You would have expected her maybe to do a little bit better than that. Uh, she was she was right in the mix off the bike, but only ran a 124, and that was four minutes slower than the winner, which was Fenella Langridge. And for someone who was an amazing short course athlete, you'd think she might be able to go a little bit quicker than that. But a little bit about Lisa Norton. Um, she's it was 2012 was her bust out year when she did awesomely so that was to be fair 10 years ago when she was nine one thousandths of a second away from an olympic gold medal yeah like when you watch the finish line you look, look like it was a draw wasn't it It was a total photo finish wasn't it it was indeed and yeah it was against uh, nicholas spurig and it just shows how some athletes can have these purple patch um, periods where they just go nuts for a short period. And there's a, there's quite a few you can name, um, like Paula Finlay, who we see now doing you know really well at long course racing for a short period there on the ITU. She was amazing. Uh, and then there was others like Anne Haug uh, for a period there. She was just crushing it on the world triathlon circuit and then kind of faded. And Lisa Norton, her purple patch was 2012. And she never really got back to that level it was sort of building through the early part of her career um in 2010 and 2011 she's getting a few more podiums and then all of a sudden in 2012 uh she gets uh, second in the world triathlon series in Kitzbühel uh and then goes on and gets a second at the London Olympics in a sprint finish she then goes and wins uh, Stockholm in her sort of home home race she goes and wins in Yokohama uh and it was just yeah one, one year where she was on the podium and just crushing it the next year she had a couple of okay results and then after that it was you know she was still a good top 10 performer but it was kind of faded fading away and uh and just wasn't that same contender she raced in the rio olympics and finished uh in 16th place and after that um she carried on for a little bit longer and since then she's come across to doing uh long course racing and look she's had some really good results um mm. she's won ironman like we look at last year she won ironman late Lake Placid. She won Challenge Salou, which was the race that was on last weekend, but it was a COVID delayed one. Uh, she finished fourth in Ironman Mallorca. The year before, she had a couple of wins. Um, the year before that, she finished third at Challenge Daytona. But when it's come to the really big races, um, she hasn't really performed at uh, the 70.3 World Champs. Um, and yeah, just hasn't, you know, when, when we see her do an Ironman, she, again, she won like Ironman Lake Placid. So hey, 
got to go out there and, and do the business, but she only ran a 316. And when we compare that to, you know, a lot of the, the top, top females, they're going to be e- either at or uh, under three hours. Obviously, it's different on course to course. So <laughs> I want to celebrate her for being an awesome general athlete and, and have my fingers crossed that she can uh, lift her game at both the half and the full distance. And we can see, you know, see some of those performances that she put in the World Triathlon, get that run down to three hours. And if she can do that, She's a good swimmer, great biker, and if she can run close to three hours, then she's going to be a lot more competitive when it comes to the the big, big Ironman races. Well, and that's what's interesting when we look at her running-wise, like even if you look at the stats, she's only in the top 76. So as you say, it's interesting she hasn't been able to convert that into the long course racing. Mm. You know, because, you know, being a short course athlete and, you know, at that moment where she was peaking, you're obviously a pretty good runner to be able to win, you know, those kind of results. And, and she's been at it for a little bit now. You know, her first 70.3 race looks like it was 2017. So, you know, you've had five years to kind of find your feet. Obviously, we've had a bit of interruptions in between times. Um, so I think there's still hope. Let's see how old is uh, Lisa Norton. She, she is 37. 37. Yeah, so still got a few years in her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Andrea Hewitt made another fur up for ITU short course athletes. Andrea Hewitt had another good, strong performance, turned 40 this week, and she still uh, got second place out of all our Kiwis in, uh, in one of our local um, sort of events. And it was a great finish, actually, because you had three females coming in to, to go for the podium, and you're coming into the last, uh, I don't know, 500 metres or so. And one of our Olympians, Ainsley Thorpe, Boom, she takes the lead. You think she's got it. She's got a you know good 10 to 20 meters over, over Andrea. And Andrea is sitting in second place. And then all of a sudden, she gets pulled over at the penalty box and she hadn't dismounted in time and got a 10 second or 10 oh, or 15 really? second penalty. So you're thinking, oh, the lead, lead change. What's, what's happening here? And then bloody Andrea gets passed by this other girl and finishes in second place, which was a bit of a shame. But still, she's turning 40 this week and she's got a, a realistic chance of making our Kiwi uh, Commonwealth Games team. And when you say realistic, do you think she'll actually be in it? Uh, well, there's four people going for three spots, basically. So someone's going to miss out. And they're all about the same. Well, you know, they're all roughly the same level. Nicole Vanderkay's uh, better. But uh, we've got, then we've got three that are, at the moment, you know, are within a few seconds of each other. Okay, John, we've got an interview. We have. Uh, I'm going to do an intro to that when I've actually done the interview. But we're going to talk to Ryan Kohler, not the brother of Coco. Oh, see, so oh, you like the joke now, do you? Hey, <laughs> here, here he is right now. Righty ho, team. Uh, as we sort of said earlier in the show, we've got Ryan Kohler on the show. He's from Fast Talk uh, Labs, and he is the head coach and physiologist there. And he's got uh, qualifications in exercise physiology, sports nutrition, uh, coaching, uh, weightlifting, and uh, all of the above. So, uh, welcome along to the show, Ryan. Thanks. Thanks for having me, John. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. I know it's you know maybe a little bit more steeped in, in mountain biking and cycling, but tell us a bit about your, um, I guess your your personal background and and how you've sort of come to where you are now. Yeah. So uh, academically, I think I mean you mentioned that you know my my degrees were kind of in that uh, you know exercise phys nutrition realm, and uh, took a little while to get there. Um, initially in undergrad, you know, just kind of figuring things out, but, uh, it was a good place to end up. And, uh, yeah, I've always been involved in endurance sports. Um, like you said, mostly mountain biking, that's always kind of been the, uh, the anchor for me to, uh, you know, to come back to, but, uh, did have a couple of years where I raced multi-sport, got into that for a while and kind of have this just 
varied background of endurance sports, uh, but, you know, doing that, which I really appreciate having, um, you know, done my fair share of running multi-sport, uh, duathlon, triathlon, but, um, I feel like it always kind of comes back to the, you know, the mountain bike for me. So yeah, did that ended up working with, um, uh, started coaching with Carmichael training systems early on in my career. And, um, I think I worked with them for about 10 years, transitioned to do some, uh, junior development and coaching with USA cycling through their, um, mountain bike development camps and their national talent ID camps. And, uh, you know, moved over to, uh, BMC had a mountain bike development team that I managed for a couple of seasons and then, uh, ended up working with, uh, Boulder center for sports medicine, Dr. Andy Pruitt got to do, um, you know, a lot of great work with him and, and really learn a lot about, uh, more of that medical side, the sports medicine aspect of it. And then eventually that brought me over to uh, fast talk labs to kind of continue it. Just a bit on, on the mountain biking side of things. Obviously, our audience is, is you know, majority triathletes. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, how, in terms of making a living out of mountain biking, we, I was discussing with someone the other day, we've got a Kiwi guy, uh, Anton Oliver, who's one of the, the better athletes in the world. And I was just wondering, you know, for, for people on that mountain biking path, is it, you know, uh, in terms of making a living, it's not compared to pro cycling, you know, the World Pro Tour, but is it is it reasonably easy for them to make a living or is it really top heavy with the, the top handful um, making most of it? Uh, yeah, I would go with the latter. It's, um, it's tricky. It was, it was interesting with um, the, when the BMC team had their development squad in the U S you know, I mean, that was like the dream, you know, for, for those juniors and U 23 athletes is let's, let's make this a living. And what I noticed is there, you know, and it's just probably across all sports, but the level of funding for the teams comes and goes. And some years it seems to push more toward the road, whereas other years mountain biking is, is really strong and there's more funding available, more sponsorships available. So I think ultimately it's definitely more on the road. That seems to kind of be like the, just more like the standard one that, that we're interested in that we put a lot of the funding into and, and mountain biking, you know, I I mean, having been riding mountain bikes my whole life, I think it's one of those things where it's, it's so much fun. It, It almost, um, you know, for those high level athletes, uh, and I guess I should qualify that. I mean, I'm not talking top of the game, but you know, the athletes that are doing this, um, they might make some money, but I think there's just this level of passion with it and fun with mountain biking, where I don't know if it'll ever get to that point where you can truly make a full living off it. But Mm. the athletes have, you know, run into over the years, it seems like they find a nice balance of making enough to, to support some level of the lifestyle and, um, they find other things to do, but it's really just this passion project for them, you know, Mm. in, in my experience. Mm. Well, one one of the things we're going to talk about today is, is different, training platforms and, and sort of analyzing data in a bit more detail. So one that we bring up regularly on the show is, is obviously Training Peaks. We've also got WKO. So I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a, a brief summary for um, for those that maybe aren't quite as entrenched in data analysis on, on some of the main platforms and, and maybe the, the pros and cons of, um, of them from a cost point of view and, and also, um, you know, how they kind of fit for, for a different type of athlete who might want something really in depth versus just having some sort of basic level um, analysis. Sure. Yeah. So initially, I mean, training peaks, I've been using that for many, many years now. Can't even however long it's been out almost. Um, 
and yeah, it's it's a great platform. I think it, it really has sort of set the standard uh, for you know for a certain level of analysis and, and communication that becomes available to to athletes and coaches. And um, it, it's like I said, it's sort of a great foundation, you know. And now what's been happening over the years, as we know, is there's there's more devices and gadgets that we can use to measure everything and get more insights. And I think it seems like the moving to something like WKO is kind of a natural progression to allow for much, much deeper insights, much more customization. And, um, you know, I think for, for a lot of athletes, the training peaks by itself is going to be great. It's going to give you all of the foundational things that you need, but then, yeah, if you do want to dive deeper and start creating custom charts and, and really get into the details, then that's where WKO comes into play. And, you know, with that, the, um, the the level of knowledge really has to go up too, where you know you have to really understand what are those inputs that go into WKO if you're going to get into that right there there's there's plenty of things you can do with um, the default charts and graphs and everything you can just pull things in and use them but there are a lot of athletes that go even deeper than that and it's great if they want to do that um it's it sort of seems like this almost limitless thing where you have so many variables you just figure out once you learn how to write the expressions in there you can really take whatever you want from it. So I think that's the big difference from training peaks versus WKO is just what's the level of detail that you as an athlete or you as a coach want or need to get into. And, um, you know, but, but between those two, um, you have, you have kind of a spread of from, you know, relatively basic and user-friendly to very much in-depth and, and requiring a greater knowledge base to use appropriately. What about like the individual platforms like, you know, if, if someone's relatively new to the sport, you know, using say Strava or uh, Garmin Connect or Sunto or something like that, do you find mm -hmm. that for, for, for you know, a, a weekend warrior, are they going to be able to get enough um, information from that? Or do you generally say, you know, it's a lot easier in training peaks or, you know, I guess, yeah, between those individual platforms for individual devices versus training peaks where you can kind of have everything in one place. Yeah, I mean, it is nice when everything's in one place like that. I think the individual uh, platforms, yeah, Strava, Garmin, et cetera, I think those are great. And one thing that I always like to qualify this with is with um, with any athlete that's using it, it, it there's tons of data, right? And Garmin is a great example where they've pulled out so many insights from like, you know, your pedaling dynamics to your VO2 max to how much time you spend in the air when you jump on your mountain bike, right? So they right. do like every, right? They can do everything now. But the big question is, um, how is that being used? And that's a point that I always stress with athletes is what are the important metrics for you so that you know you're making progress? Because if we just, if we have a novice athlete that starts off, they'll get bombarded with, with data from everywhere, whatever platform they're using, and it becomes very overwhelming. So as a coach, I always want to get their take on what what is the meaningful piece for you? And from that, then we, we pick and choose what we need regardless of the platform and uh, go from there, you know, even with Strava, like Strava doesn't go very deep into the data, um, nowhere near like Garmin or WKO or anything like that. But if we know what we're looking for, we can pull that out. So yeah, for novice athletes, like Strava is a really easy entry point. It gives you good, 
easy, you know, information to look at. You can start to make decisions, but then when, when you inevitably go down that road, then there's other um, platforms available to, to dive deeper too. Cool. Okay. One of the things yeah. I want to discuss today was, was really around the left-right balance, which is one of the metrics you can measure um, in, in training peaks. Um, and a lot of people are going to look at their, their power or their pace and their heart rate, um, but not a lot probably look at their left-right balance. And we're just going to discuss um, what that actually means. So firstly, can you just give us a bit of a, a 101 level on what left-to-right um, actually means and, and maybe how it's measured, whether you've got a single-sided power meter versus a, a dual-sided power meter. So just a, a 101 level of, of what left-right um, balance is. Yeah. So normally when we're measuring power, um, the, the most accessible, you know, ways to get that are, are, you know, pretty much a single-sided, uh, power meter. Right. And, and we, if we use like stages as an example, they have, that replaces your crank arm with a crank based power meter and you can get single-sided power that way. But yeah, a lot of athletes then, um, may have that question of, well, what's the other side doing? And that's where we can get into double-sided. So when we start looking at that and, and we want to think about left, right, um, then yeah, we need to switch to having a, a, a way of measuring power, a way of measuring that torque being produced on both sides. So we have those strain gauges now on the left and right. And, and as, as we, as we pedal, now we get that feedback on both sides. So, um, you know, the interesting thing with that is it allows us to start looking at not just, you know, one, number for power to say, okay, what am I putting out here? But with a lot of athletes, we know that, um, almost none of us are perfectly in balance, perfectly symmetrical. So, uh, that question always comes up of, well, am I pedaling? You know, it could be the right way. Am I, am I, how am I pedaling based on my known limitations? Do I have leg length discrepancies, et cetera? Do I have injuries or am I just changing as I age and, and how is that affecting? So I think those are all questions that might come up that would lead someone to look at, um, starting to analyze, well, how do my left and right, uh, powers differ? Is there like a normal number? Like, I mean, in terms of your, when you're, you would have interpreted lots of different athletes, um, over the years, uh, you know, what's the, mm -hmm. is there, is there a normal range or is it just, you know, have a look at it and that's what your numbers are. And then, and then you start making adjustments or, um, yeah, uh, change things once you actually see what your numbers are. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, in terms of normal, it's, it's really specific to that person because there's so many variables that can affect it. But, um, yeah, when I look at it with someone, if I see something in the range of like, you know, three to 4% difference, I usually just gloss over it and we're like, yeah, mm. that's probably normal. Nobody's perfect. And, um, that may be just normal um, left to right differences for that person, or it may not be. It depends on their on their situation. You know, if they are if they are experiencing, um, you know, changes in their power or their perception of the effort, like late in a ride or something, and, and then we can go back and look at that and say, okay, well, maybe. 2% difference is normal for you, but Hey, that changes to eight. What's happening. What are, what's happening with your biomechanics at three hours into this ride versus 45 minutes. Um, so yeah, I think normal has to be taken a little bit with that context of like, what's the, what's the situation too, you know? Mm. Um, and, you know, when it goes beyond that, if I start to see 
like with a lot of athletes doing, you know, an, an hour, two hours, like more typical day-to-day um, -day training sessions. Uh, and we see that those don't really change too much. Yeah, then, okay, that, that must be your normal. But if it starts to get bigger than that, then we do ask questions and say, all right, well, how does that relate to how you perform, how you feel? And like I said earlier, if there's any known issues, um, you know, then, then do we need to uh, take those into consideration? And this is where, you know, working at Boulder Center for Sports Medicine, like, like Dr. Pruitt was, was um, huge with this because we would say, hey, well, here's a, here's a difference in left to right power, but then he might take that a step further and say, oh, well, when we do a bike fit on you, here are all those different changes we're seeing, not only by the power, but if, as we work our way up through the ankle, the knee, the hip and the upper body, we can see all these changes occurring. So then it allows us to potentially relate those numbers to your biomechanics. I'll come back to that that point in a moment, but um, just in terms of you know what athletes should be looking for if they're trying to do some self interpretation. So you mentioned one um, point there as an athlete gets maybe further into a ride if they were doing a three hour ride and they start to see a bigger discrepancy. Um, that's probably one trip point to to start to have a look at. Are there other things that people can look at in terms of what's going on with their left to right balance um, where they should be having a few, you know, at least a few small alarm bells going off if, if they're trying to interpret uh, any changes um, either at different intensities or, or um, as they go through long workouts or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing I would, I would encourage athletes to do is, um, look at that, look at your entire ride and, and just find that point where it deviates from the, from normal, right? Like, and, and you might have a ride where everything went well and you get back and you say, okay, yeah, nothing really changed, but I would encourage them to look for the points where you do see a change and then go back and, and take that as your starting point and say, okay, was it, um, was it fatigue? Was it the terrain potentially, uh, what was I doing leading up to that point? Um, you know, and, and related to fatigue was, was I not hydrating enough? Was I not fueling enough? And, and did that fatigue sort of contribute to just this poor body posture that, that made me pedal differently? Um, you know, and there, there's, so there's a lot of things that I think could come up potentially, but that would really be the starting point is just look at where it deviates from normal. And then we can start asking questions around that by looking at, you know, other parts of the file, like what we can bring in heart rate, we can bring in absolute power numbers we can bring in um, terrain to say, well, here's potential factors that may have gone into that. And let's just start exploring those and see if there's any of that throw up a red flag to say, oh, well, that, that might cause you to pedal differently. You know, mm. is, is um, there anything else you want to sort of mention about left, right power balance? Because I know that you, you talked there about, you know, doing, um, if you're doing a bike fit and you've, you've done those in the past and you see some biomechanical issues going on that people can address. Um, is there anything else you want to sort of comment on that area uh, in terms of what athletes can do if they, um, if they see some discrepancies? And I, I know you've already listed a few, but, but anything else um, you want to comment on? I mean, working in, uh, you know, a sports medicine clinic was really the, the big eye-opening portion where as a coach, you know, if, if I looked at it in a vacuum and just said, okay, there's something different here, then I wouldn't necessarily have all the resources to help the athlete solve that problem. But working in kind of that multidisciplinary uh, center where we have access to, to doctors and physical therapists and bike fitters that also talk together, um, that's where when we do see changes, my immediate reaction is, okay, first let's check out the bike fit. And then in addition to that, 
that, which is usually part of the bike fit, let's just do a movement assessment, see how you're moving and, and get those, those pieces assessed so that we can tell if those are going to, um, play into it. So one of the things that, um, Rob, my coworker, uh, sent, you know, he did a lot of this with bike fit, um, and Andy at BCSM, he mentioned, um, you know, when, one of a uh, pro athlete, um, I'll just leave his name out for now, but, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, we had a, a pro athlete, you know, a number of years ago that, um, you know, was having some more, uh, medical complications on the bike and, you know, at the time was racing on a single-sided, um, power meter and that was their sponsor. And that's what they had. Um, what was interesting is after going through, uh, the bike fit with, uh, with Dr. Pruitt, then they actually ended up attaching a, a, a non-drive side power meter so that they could actually measure left, right. And that actually helped with, um, the uh, diagnosis and then actually improving the outcomes for the cyclist. So, you know, there's, that's really when I do see those changes, then I immediately say, okay, we need to bring in more of the team. Who can we go to? And it's usually, you know, the sports med physicians, the bike fitters and the physical therapists, because they're really those uh, medical and biomechanical experts that can really contribute a lot more to, uh, finding that answer. Um, I'm always keen to get some comments on, you know, you, you have been more in the cycling world, but you will be, have been dealing with quite a few triathletes as well. I mean, what are some of the things that you see that perhaps triathletes consistently, maybe not necessarily get wrong, but can sometimes gloss over, uh, in particular areas where cyclists might be a bit more in tune and a bit more focused on, is there any particular things, you know, triathletes can learn off mountain bikers and road cyclists properly from more from a stats point of view. Um, and when they're looking at their, their numbers and, and trying to sort of modify their training a little bit to improve their cycling. Yeah. I mean, uh probably the first thing that would come to mind is recovery, you know, working, working with triathletes in the past. I think one of the hard parts is that you're really trying to balance three sports, you know, if not four total commitments, if we add nutrition in there too, um, you know, there's a lot to balance. So I think recovery is, is really the one that sticks out where, you know, as a single sport athlete, it, it's a little bit easier where we can arrange our weeks and we say, all right, here's our, here are our key sessions. We do these things. Um, we recover from those. And then we have these secondary sessions that, uh, we get in and maybe there's some others that are pretty flexible. If we miss them, we miss them. But, um, I think it just becomes really difficult. Yeah. When you're trying to balance multiple sports where, um, sometimes you may not, uh, you may, you may, um, try to try to balance actually all three at the same time, you know, and that can impact recovery. Um, so looking at what are the, you know, really prioritizing and that's where, um, in terms of stats, you know, it's, it's a little bit, it's tricky because I'm thinking about the platforms that I use now. And, you know, if you break, if you break down, you know, volume in terms of sport type, that may be one way to look at it and see like, is the training I'm doing aligning with the plan? But other than that, I think, um, it would be more of like a general recovery. And, and, and mm. when we're talking about stats related to that, then I would, I would look at things, um, you know, like, like if we think about training load and how quickly we're accumulating that, does that sort of align with our expectations Does that align with the, the progress that we're making? making. Um, also looking at, um, you know, and, and I'll just throw this out there. Like I also use the platform, uh, intervals.icu. 
So what, one thing I like with that is, is you get this efficiency measurement um, where it's the, the power heart rate relationship. And I look at that over a longer term. So if I start to see that, um, you know, obviously we want that to increase um, more Watts uh, per beat. And if we start to see that there's a plateau or a decline and, and, and we see changes in perhaps resting heart rate, uh, then those are some signals that I'll watch on a longer term to say, all right, are things moving in the right direction? Or if we're not seeing these changes, does that mean maybe we're not taking enough rest or we're out of balance with our, our training distribution? Matt, what, what was the name of that, uh, that website again, or that platform? Yeah, it's called intervals.icu. Hmm. Cool. Awesome, guys. You can yeah. check that out. Um, tell us a little bit more about Fast Talk Laboratories, um, just to sort of wrap things up, because right? I know you guys yeah. do do podcasting and uh, you're based up there in Boulder, which I'm sure a lot of athletes would, if they don't live in that area, would love to get there some stage. So if they can uh, find yeah. another excuse or reason to come your way, um, tell us a bit <laughs> about what you guys do. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. We uh, so we're like you said. We we it's sort of uh, Fast Talk Labs sort of began with the Fast Talk podcast and then branched into Fast Talk Laboratories, which is sort of this endurance community where um, we we do a lot of content to really you know dive into the science of cycling and endurance sports to um, help athletes and coaches with um, you know things like training, nutrition, techniques, tactics, whatnot, and uh, we also have. Uh, a suite of services that we um, also bring in where we provide those for athletes and coaches as well. And really trying, trying to um, uh, create that collaborative uh, sense where we can not only work with the individual athletes, but allow um, coaches to provide those services through us too, and have this nice collaborative uh, information sharing type of approach to, um, you know, help them uh, get all the solutions they need for their athletes. And uh, we have a pretty vibrant uh, forum as well, where there's a lot of discussion among coaches and athletes in terms, you know, I mean, the whole thing, you know, racing, nutrition, different training and protocol questions. So all sorts of different things. Awesome. Love your work. And hopefully yeah. we can all make it to Boulder one day. Has uh, summer arrived yet? It's close. We're in that Colorado spring. So I think we call this one either like winter two or spring one, but we're not yet in summer. <laughs> uh, very good. Awesome. Right. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, John, for having me on. Okay, John, okay, John's done that interview. Um, we're recording this bit after we, before we've done the interview, so let's get into winger, winger of, the week. of the week. Okay, number 12. Who is this, Jumbo? Number 12 is, I'm just busting it out right now. When I say busting it out, this person looks like they've been busting things. He's got a picture on his profile here of uh, what looks like a broken collarbone, um, which is never a nice one to have. Have you broken and a collarbone? No, I've never really broken much. of. All I've had is, a when I was a kid, uh, a green stick fracture. So that's kind of not even a proper fracture in my, my forearm from a skiing incident. And that's about it. I've had a broken finger and that's, that's all. Yeah, same. I've never really broken anything, but this, this good old Jonathan, he's been held together by bits and pieces inside his body. Yes, Jonathan Blake. He's from uh, North Canton uh, in OH, which is, I'm assuming, Ohio. Um, bit of a swifter. He was busting out a few laps on the Paris course earlier this week. He also went did a group ride or oh, an Arena Games warm-up workout with Beth Potter on the hilly route in Watopia. Geez, they got a, it looks like they've got yeah. a reasonable, uh, reasonable crew along there. So, go on him. He's been busting out 
plenty of Zwift riding there. Consistent trainer all yeah, the no. way through through the years. Not many uh, easy weeks there. So uh, nice work. And if we look at his stats from uh, so one thing I noticed even today when I was looking at this, I was looking at the side by side comparisons and um, in the last uh, last four weeks. He's been averaging six runs per week. Um, he's got an estimated best time of 255 for a marathon. Then I noticed at the bottom of the page, there's the KOMs and course records that people hold. Yep. And he's actually got one here. So let me just uh, find where that is. And while I was doing that, he's got the, the Hover Miler. He did a one, one mile uh, on the 21st of January, 2018. And he did it in a 652. So it looks a bit lumpy, but good on him. He holds Jonathan Blake holds one course record. You do you hold any? Well, it's funny you should say that, Bevan, because I had a look at this and I've got a multi, I've got a number of uh, King of the Mountain or KOMs yeah. um, on both running and cycling, and this is where you can cock up a little bit. Uh, I actually, before the show, I was actually going through and deleting a couple of them because they were clearly uh, GPS errors, a couple oh, of them, and, okay. and other ones had been when I was like measuring run courses and I was actually on my bike measuring a run course. So oh, okay. I, I, I do hold a few, but I also had to delete a few as well. I've got a few as well, actually, but uh, I've even got right. one within Hagley Park, but it's admittedly it's only... 20, 200 meters, but I'll take it. Um, <laughs> and Hagley um, Park, there's lots of them, isn't there? They're everywhere. So um, I'm, I'm going to yeah. go search them down and take you down <laughs> if I can. Anyway, Jonathan Blake, he did 22 hours of training last week, 22 hours and 14 minutes. In fact, he swam two hours and six minutes, biked 15 hours and 33 minutes, and ran four hours and 34 minutes. So he is a triathlete doing all three disciplines. Nice work. Okay, the quiz answer. What was the what was the time, the winning time of the first ever Ironman in Hawaii in 1978? Now, Jombo, what do you think it is? I reckon it's going to be around about 12 hours. Oh, it's see, be I, was thinking, guess. I was thinking at 14. Mm, but you might I'm be thinking, right. I'm thinking 12 to, four, 12 to 14. Yeah. But I'll, Good old try rating here from Torsten, and we were both wrong. What was it? 17? Well, my first guess was close. 1146. I'd say you pretty much got it. You know, give 20 minutes. Gordon Haller. We've had him on our Legends of Triathlon podcast. So if you do want to hear about that, go and check that out. And we talked sort of talked talk through that. He was a, an interesting character. I'm just trying to see if we've got the splits. We have got a splits. Uh, one hour 20 in the swim, 6.56 on the bike, and a very respectable 3.30 on the run for 11.46. Nice. Interestingly, if you did, like on a try rating, they've got all the Kona win times of all time. Dave Scott was impressive, wasn't he? Because he won first time in 1980. So he won it on the third running of it. He did a 9.24. Now, in the Iron War, he, he lost that, but he probably did an um, 8.12 probably in that race, hey? So, you know, he, he he really was the man who, well, one of the pioneers in, in really increasing the speed of the race, wasn't he? He was. He went eight, eight hours, 10 minutes in the Iron War. Did he? There you go. Mm. So... Um, yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Okay, well, there you go. We were both off. Okay, what about well, John Swimset? 
Uh, what did we do this morning? We kicked off with 200 warm-up, then did 200 metres alternating 25 drill, 25 free, and then we did two 100 IMs, and then three times 100 bands only. And the main set today was four times 200 steady with 20 seconds rest, and then four 25 sprints um, with, again, about 20 seconds rest. And we repeated that twice through and then finished off with a 600 ascending. So that's getting slower, so starting fast and each sort of 100 to 200 metres, getting a little, bit, um, a little bit slower. And that was the session done and dusted. And that's it. Okay, so let's say that big thank you to our patrons. First of all, Tony, don't be afraid of your dreams, West. Adam, Crazy Legs Fox. And then we've got Matt Lion Brown Charlton. Now, if you want to become a patron, go to www.imtalk.me, go through the process, support the boys, get a gift, go to draw to win some cool prizes. Also, if you want to get a show, email to you, bottom of the front page, put your information in. If you want some coaching, coachjohnson.com. My podcast, Bevan James Isle Show, is go to bevanjamesisles.com. Cool content. Um, what is it? Iontalkpodcast at gmail.com. Jombo, your goss. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to be quick here. I've got to go off and do this interview in a moment. Uh, my goss is I set a new record, Bevan, at the weekend. Um, for cycling, I did a bike ride. I had to go and park the car a long way away. We were doing a, a sort of a tramp at the weekend, and I had to park at the top of a really big hill, top of Hilltop, um, which is a 7K descent um, or ascent, yeah. and then was biking home, which was then about, I think it's about 50 or 60, probably about closer to 60Ks uh, home from there. And... I was driving, 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 getting there. The weather forecast was that the rain was supposed to be clearing through the morning. I was driving there and I was driving into it thinking, I've got to bust through this at some stage and it's going to be clear on the other side because the clear weather was coming from the direction I was driving and it wasn't getting any better. I was like, oh, this is going to be miserable. And it was miserable where I had to park the car. It was raining and I was on top of a big hill and had to start my ride going straight downhill and absolutely oh, freezing cold. the tits off. And what I realized after the ride is I actually managed to uh, average a higher speed on the flat than I did coming down a seven kilometer descent. I had oh, to go really? so slow. I was going wow. so slow. I was on my TT bike and there was some gravel on the road as well. And Were you scared? I wasn't warmed up. Uh, it was just very shaky. You know, going TT bikes aren't the best to descend and the, the, the best of times yeah. just because I wasn't warmed up, wasn't used to conditions, it was raining. Don't, the descent was um, quite corrugated on the corner, so you really had to slow down a lot, and I just didn't want to fall off, uh, so yeah, that was a bit embarrassing. Um, on the upside, though, then I did average uh, good speed on the way back. So that was that. Went to tramp with the family over the weekend, so that was pretty cool. And uh, back to running um, pretty much normally now, which is great, and off to do a four-day little camp tail end of this week going on some big adventures on the bike so looking forward to that that's me done dusted bevan where's the camp uh we are going all around canterbury we're just doing random different things going over arthur's pass going up around gore bay we're going up um into the banks peninsula so we're doing all sorts of different stuff rides at um quite a few rides i haven't done before so going adventuring and going going along well, myself, I have been recording an audiobook. So as John, I was saying at the intro of the show that I'm in Tikipo, Um and it's been a very interesting process, John, recording an audiobook because I'm trusting my editor <laughs> a lot because I do make a lot of mistakes. Um, and also trying to keep it interesting is really, you know, trying to keep it so it will be an interesting kind of listening experience for someone. Um, it probably took me... 
the book's probably got about seven hours and it's probably taken me about 20 something hours of recording. And it's just really interesting. And the, the other thing I don't do in life, John, is I don't sit down for hours and hours. So even just my body got sore from sitting down, you know, like it was just not, my body's not used to it. And the other funny thing that happened was as I'm talking, I must do a lot of this, you know, I must, I'm, I'm showing John shaking my hand. So I yeah. must be doing this. And on the first day I was doing it, after about an hour, my Apple watch turns to me and goes, you've completed your exercise for the day. <laughs> I'm like, well, what's all that about? And I, and I couldn't figure out what was happening. Why was it doing this? And because basically I'm, I'm kind of swinging my hand back and forth as I'm talking, which basically makes my thing, my, my watch think I'm exercising. So on yesterday, I did about four hours exercise. Great day. <laughs> Great nice. effort. Very nice. So um, yeah, I'll be, I'll, I'll be really fascinated to see what the finished product is like because um, yeah, again, there's there's lots of mistakes. You always get it right eventually, but you do make lots of mistakes along the way. And uh, but it's been it's been a really cool experience just to do something that I wouldn't normally do. So that should come out in about six seven weeks from now, Jombo. So get ready to buy a book, everyone. Get ready to buy That's a true. book for a gift. There we go. Nice work. Right, I got to go do our interview with uh, Ryan. So we'll catch you guys next week. Okay, you start it up. I'm Russ. I'm Endo. Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha. Kia kaha.